Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Brad Gray. Brad is the CEO of Seattle-based Nanostring Technologies. I wrote about Nanostring all the way back at its founding in the early 2000s as a spin-out from the Institute for Systems Biology. The company started out by making digital barcodes that allowed it to do multiplex gene expression, the analysis of multiple genes at once, and the extent to which they are dialed on or off in a given sample. The technology caught on with a few prominent early adopters in academia. But the company struggled in those early years selling instruments and consumables to a wider array of academic labs. Brad was hired in 2010 to be the CEO who could take it to another level in commercialization and lead an expansion that would take the company into the cancer diagnostics business. There were some ups and downs and some hard lessons along the way. For a while, Nanostring got by with cash from pharmaceutical partners who wanted to evaluate tumors in patients getting their novel immunotherapies. This was a time when many in biopharma were trying to understand what made some tumors hot and others cold, and there was growing interest in why some of these patients respond to treatment and others don't. Merck and Celgene were a couple of companies that saw the value in Nanostring's platform at a time when not everyone did. By 2019, Nanostring decided to divest its cancer diagnostics work and double down on a new technology platform called Geomics. This is the latest tool from Nanostring. It's caught on with scientists much faster than the first. These are the early days of spatial biology, in which Nanostring and others are seeking to shed light on what's going on in cells with fine-grained resolution, but also with more context that can sometimes get lost. The company's new ambition is to map the universe of biology. It's bold. <laughs> Brad and I have known each other for a long time, but I didn't know a lot about his upbringing until this conversation. I didn't realize he passed on a Division I football scholarship to focus on his studies at MIT. It was fun to ask him about some of those key moments in his life, how he got some international experience later, worked as a consultant, and then got a chance as a young person to learn the diagnostics business under Henry Termeer at Genzyme. Brad is one of the many executives who credits Henry with inspiring him and creating an opportunity for him to thrive. Now, please join me and Brad Gray on The Long Run. Brad Gray, welcome to The Long Run. Happy to be here, Luke. So, Brad, uh, when I looked at your website, this is one of the first things you do when you prepare for an interview. You see things like uh, your tagline is now map the universe of biology. That, that is quite a phrase. And, and I really want you to dive in and, and help define that for, for me and the listeners as we go on later in the show. It's, it's really a, a bold statement. Well, we're looking to do bold things at, at Nanostring, Luke. And uh, you know, biology doesn't just happen uh, with averages of biology across cells. It happens in space. We're made up of tissue, which has three dimensions of physical space and countless dimensions of biology. And uh, there's a lot there to map. And uh, Nanostring's right in the center of it. It is. It's the the little universe as opposed to the the big the big universe <laughs> in space. <laughs> um, anyway. Um, 
Like with many of these interviews, Brad, I like to start out with a little bit on the person. So can you tell me just a little bit about um, you and where you come from? You're, you're a native of Columbia, South Carolina. Is that right? That's right. Columbia is the capital of South Carolina. I grew up in a little suburb called Irmo and, uh, you know, middle class neighborhood. Father was uh, an engineer and an entrepreneur who was kind of at the early days of connecting personal computers to industrial control systems. Started a business in our garage and kind of ran it as a one-man show, uh, coding PCs through the night. Uh, my mom was a special ed teacher and you know, a younger brother and a younger sister. Huh. Okay. So you've got some entrepreneurship in, in the family. Yeah. My did, did you get was... tasked as a, as a young kid working on uh, your dad's business? No, but I watched him. And if anything, it made me a more reluctant entrepreneur. I mean, my father's business was ultimately not successful. He, he tried for on and off for a decade to make it on his own, uh, stubbornly refusing to take on partners or capital. And uh, it was tough. He eventually had to reenter the more traditional workforce, which was a, a challenging thing to do when you'd been your own boss for a decade. So if anything, uh, I think uh, it made me approach entrepreneurship with a real sense of the risk um, as well as the reward. Interesting. Okay. So what kind of student were you? What, what kind of school did you go to? Well, I went to a public high school where I was definitely a science and math geek. Um, you know, I remember very early on identifying uh, with uh, the science fair as kind of one of my favorite times of year. Uh, my, my dad and I would do kind of elaborate projects that, you know, I was the kid who showed up whose science fair experiment was definitely supplemented by parental help. But at the same time, I learned a ton. I built a maglev train one year. Um, I did a project on Ohm's Law very early in elementary school. Um, and, uh, you know, by my uh, high school days, I was on the Science Olympiad team competing in events like balancing chemical equations and cell biology. So I definitely identified science and engineering early on as a passion. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Sounds like, you know, classic overachiever, getting good grades, competing in that way. Well, I, I think so. I, I wanted to please. Um, you know, I was I liked the attention that doing well in school brought. I'm also really competitive and, you know, identified a set of other students who are very scholastically oriented, who I like to compete with to see who got the best grades. Um, and, you know, athletics became important for me as, uh, as I moved into middle and high school as well. And that was another outlet for some of that same competitive energy. Yeah, so, so you're, a, bi I, you know, you're a big guy. What, what, what sports did you play? Um, I was always a big guy. And so I got pulled into uh, two sports early uh, that I played all through high school. First was football. Um, and the second was throwing the shot put and discus for the track team. Yeah, yeah. So what position did you play in football? Throughout my high school days, I was a center. So offensive line. And um, I uh, got pulled up to play on the varsity team in 10th grade, which was a big honor in my little South Carolina town. And um, since I started, you know, three years in, in high school, I got pretty good because you just get a lot of snaps um, and uh, even had the opportunity, as it turned out, to play in college, um, uh, both at the Division One level, which I decided not to do. Um, and then I ended up playing at the Division Three level 
in a place where I could balance my interest in school and football a little bit more naturally for myself. Uh huh. And where was that? MIT. <laughs> That's what I thought. <laughs> a little school there along the Charles River. <laughs> right. So, I mean, wow, uh, turning down Division One football like that. Um, I mean, not many kids turn down that kind of opportunity. Um, I, I guess you wanted to balance the schooling, as you say, but um, that must have been a hard decision. It really was. Um, it was a funny story. I was, uh, as I said, I, I played football varsity in 10th grade, so I had a letter jacket. And I was in the airport going somewhere um, and waiting for my father to, to check into the ticking counter when I was spotted by the offensive line coach for the University of Virginia, who was traveling to the airport on a recruiting visit. And he walked over to me and asked me who I was and you know, how old I was. And uh, my, my dad walked up and he handed my dad a card and said, I'd like to keep in touch. You know, this is a big kid and, you know, it's a few years from now, but, um, you know, maybe there'll be interest. And lo and behold, you know, a few years later, they came down to visit me, added me up to the University of Virginia and offered me a football scholarship. Um, by that time, I had applied early admissions to MIT. And, um, you know, obviously my, my identity and my fiber was really around the science and technology. But I was torn by the glory of Division One football, which was uh, seductive and fun. Um, but in the end, I decided, you know, that long term thinking beyond the four years of college, um, getting a foundation in science and engineering and being amongst the brightest minds um, of my generation, which is what I perceived I would be part of at MIT, um, really attracted me to do that. And so my family, to their credit, you know, basically scraped every penny they had and we took out student loans and, um, you know, I ended up going to MIT instead. And it was, it was a obviously an amazing uh, fork in the road and absolutely the right decision in retrospect. But there well, were definitely and, people in my hometown who did not understand it. Um, Columbia, South Carolina has a little community college called Midlands Technical Institute. And many of my friends, when I told them I was going to MIT, actually thought that I had turned on a football scholarship to go to that community college and didn't know what <laughs> MIT was. And uh, so there were a lot of you know, uh, strange looks that I got uh, during that spring of my senior year as I told people what my plans were. Okay, so you go off to MIT, and um, you and I are about the same age, so this would have been, I guess, the, the middle 90s, um, <laughs> and, and you just studied, studied chemical engineering. Why, uh, why chemi? Well, I was, I was really interested in, you know, what, what at that time we called genetic engineering, the idea of manufacturing things through genetically engineered bacteria or, uh, you know, mammalian cells. Um, and this was, you know, early days of biopharmaceuticals. And, you know, I was torn between whether to study biology or chemical engineering, but, you know, my parents had put the fear of God in me about having a job and having a profession when I got out. So I ended up majoring in chemical engineering and minoring in biology. Um, and I spent a lot of my time at the interface of those two. You know, MIT's motto is men's at Nanus, it's mind and hand. Uh, and so a lot of what I think is special about MIT is the ability to do research as an undergrad. And for $7 an hour throughout my undergrad days, I would work in labs um, getting research experience. And MIT had a great chemical engineering department who was at the center of the bioprocessing industry. Uh, people like Danny Wong, Charlie Cooney, uh, Greg Stephanopoulos, 
uh, Bob Langer. And I, I got to work in all of their labs over my four years. And that really is what hooked me on biotechnology as an industry and profession. Okay, so you had a, a pretty much a guaranteed job. If you graduate with a chemie degree from MIT, you can go work for a big company straight out of school, no problem. Or you could go to graduate school, or you know maybe you could also like uh, play this little high risk uncertainty game in biology. Is, are, were these kind of some of the options that you were looking at? They were. I mean, for me uh, at, at that time, uh, I spent my summers um, interning in biopharmaceuticals as a way of getting professional experience. And then again, earning a few bucks over the summer. I, I spent the summer of 1990, I guess it was 1996 at Genentech scaling up what became Rituxan through their cell culture processes. Um, I spent the summer after that at Merck in their vaccine production facility um, uh, doing scale-up work. And so I got a real sense for the, what biomanufacturing was. Um, a comment was made to me, though, that second summer when I was at Merck that changed how I was thinking about my career. Uh, my, my supervisor there was a, an MIT chemical engineering PhD alum. He said to me offhand one day, you know, the gross margins on chickenpox vaccine are like 90 plus percent. So even though you've helped improve yield this summer, it's unlikely that your work will ever be implemented because it's so hard to go back to the FDA and change a process that, and it's so profitable already that it's unlikely we'd be uh, implementing your changes. And I thought, well, that's a bummer. You know, I, I thought, I, you know, I, I spent my whole summer in the lab trying to eke out a little more yield and productivity. And now I realize that seems to be not where, at least at that moment in the industry, the action was. So when I went back to school my senior year, I really had a different mindset about looking for where in the biotechnology industry I wanted to participate and kind of recognizing that the manufacturing end might not be it. Um, so I, you know, at, at that point in time, I began to think, kind of debate for myself between applying for a PhD in chemical engineering, which had been kind of the path I was on versus maybe thinking about business as a part of that industry I wanted to learn more about. So is this when you decided to go to, to Oxford and, and pursue the business and economics angle? Yeah, decided is an overstatement. I, you know, I, I was blessed with an opportunity uh, to go to England on a scholarship and um, chose to use that scholarship to, to kind of diversify intellectually into business. Um, and, uh, and it was great. It was a whole new frontier for me to learn. Um, yeah, I found Oxford pretty much the polar opposite of MIT, you know, whereas MIT, you're, you're always on the bleeding edge. You're always thinking about technology in the future. Oxford is a place where you have dinner and a hall that looks like it's straight out of Harry Potter at a long table wearing a black robe and saying a Latin grace before dinner and talking <laughs> politics and history and social justice over to, over the dinner table. And I was, I was a fish out of water. If I had been, you know, a pig in New York, you know what, at, at MIT, then I was a fish out of water at Oxford, but it really did broaden my horizons and uh, change the way I thought about what I wanted to do with my life. And how long are you there? I was there for two years um, uh, from 1998 to 2000. Okay. Okay. So by this point, um, what was, how did you think about the future at 2000? This was, I mean, this was the year of the 
first draft sequence of the human genome. Um, biology, biotech was looking pretty interesting. Um, were you thinking like, hey, this is time to get a job or um, maybe go to graduate school for some more? <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, it felt like the the future was happening in 2000. Remember the NASDAQ was breaking records. Young yeah. people were flocking to start their own companies. The dot-coms were, were underway. Of course, the, like you said, the human genome was happening. It felt at that moment when I wrapped up at Oxford that, you know, four or five more years of schooling was not what I wanted to do. I wanted to get out there uh, and kind of get in the fight. Um, I, I, at that being said, I was, you know, pretty risk intolerant. Um, and so a very low risk way to become involved in the industry was to join a consulting firm. You know, I joined McKinsey and Company in their Boston office where a lot of the practice was focused on the biopharmaceutical industry. And it seemed like a good way for me to be close to the science and learn and apprentice on some of the business aspects of things that I still felt, feel, felt I needed to learn. So I moved back to Boston and joined McKinsey in 2000. And yeah, this is a classic experience for a lot of people out of school where um, you get exposed to a lot of different clients. They've all got their own specific set of issues. You come in there, you assess the situation, you learn something, you write something up. But um, so it's, it can be a really good education um, for, for, for learning about a, a variety of companies and, and industries. Um, what was your experience like? My experience was really very positive. I mean, it's it's more of an apprenticeship than it is an education. I mean, you're parachuted in to high pressure, tough situations. Maybe it's the integration of a, a two companies that just merged, or a major restructuring and cost cutting effort of a company in crisis, or you know, a total rethink on the strategy of a drug launch based on clinical trial results and. You, you know, at that time, our model was to spend four or five days a week on site with our clients. So you're really parachuting into the physical offices of these companies, and you're getting a chance to spend time with executives um, with a variety of different leadership approaches on a variety of different topics. And I really spend a lot of time watching, you know, in addition to doing my work, watching the successful executives at my clients, understanding how they led, uh, how they made decisions, how they communicated in the boardroom, um, and just soaked up as much as I possibly could. Now, how did you end up at Genzyme? You know, after four years in consulting, you really kind of hit a fork in the road where you got to decide, do you want to be a partner in the consulting firm and become a professional consultant? Or do you want to you know, leave and join maybe one of your clients or another business? And for me, for sure, I did not want to spend my life being a consultant. I wanted to get in the fight. And uh, I was in the Boston area already, and I thought um, the, the biotech community rather than the big pharma community was culturally a place where I thought I could um, have more impact faster. Um, I met uh, with people at a bunch of different companies and was attracted to Genzyme because it was a a multi-divisional company. Uh, Henry had built it um, to have a whole lot of small businesses and um, therefore a lot of nooks and crannies where a young, ambitious person could find a leadership opportunity and cut their teeth on something that was relatively small, 
Um, but it was a defining career experience much earlier than you might get in a very large monolithic traditionally structured company. So I joined the corporate development group at Genzyme, which you know imported talent into Genzyme and actually produced a huge number of current biotech CEOs um, who came in, learned how to do deals, uh, working with Henry, and then got a chance at some sort of general management opportunity uh, within Genzyme before moving on. And then, so you start in corporate development, and after a while, you migrate over to diagnostics. Uh, now, Genzyme, by and large, I mean, as you say, it had all these different divisions, but you know, therapeutics was the main line of work or the, the biggest contributor to top-line revenue. Um, what was it about diagnostics that uh, appealed to you uh, and, and maybe made that a, a good place for you to um, spread your wings, so to speak? Yeah, two things. Um, one was probably deliberate and the other was opportunistic. Um, you know, I got involved with that division. Uh, I, I was walking uh, home across the Longfellow Bridge to Beacon Hill from Genzyme's headquarters one spring day with Jim Garrity, who I think you've had on this program before, uh, who lived in the same neighborhood. And he said, you know, what do you think of this Genzyme Genetics division? Uh, Genzyme Genetics was at that time the third or fourth largest diagnostic reference lab in the U.S. and was kind of quietly tucked inside Genzyme. Um, and, uh, you know, it turned out that every year Quest and LabCorp CEOs called Henry and asked him why he owned that diagnostic division and shouldn't he just sell it to them? And, you know, we were kind of going through the annual cycle of that uh, at this time. And um, somebody needed to look at that question. Why should a biopharmaceutical company own a diagnostic uh, testing service? And uh, this was 2006, and it was just the dawn of personalized medicine. So I got kind of assigned the task of looking at that question along with a team of other people. And I became very intrigued with um, what was happening in oncology at that time. Um, this was right as genomic health was pioneering uh, you know, a test that would help make really important treatment decisions in breast cancer. It was right as Myriad was commercializing its BRCA test. It was just as targeted therapies were beginning to become the focus of cancer drug development at big pharma companies. And I became convinced that it was strategically important for a pharma company to have a diagnostic capability that Genzyme was fortunate enough to have that. And it would be absolutely the wrong time to divest that capability. And, um, you know, in exchange for that kind of good recommendation, you know, Henry more or less said, okay, smarty pants, why don't you go help that division pull it off? And so um, I got sort of assigned to the opportunity to go out there and help realize this um, vision of impacting personalized medicine uh, within the Genzyme Genetics Division. Henry, Henry himself uh, had had that experience of being a young person kind of thrown into the deep end of the pool way back when at Baxter, and that's part of what helped him. Um, but be prepared for what came later with biotech. Exactly, and his willingness to do that with young, bright, high potential people at Genzyme is part of the reason that I think Genzyme has a hugely disproportionate alumni network at the top of small and up and coming biopharmaceutical companies and biotech companies of all stripes. Because many of us in one way or another were tossed into the deep end of the pool by Henry. And uh, yeah, those of us who didn't sink, you know, really learned at pretty early years, you know, how to get things done. If you like this show, subscribe to Timmerman Report. 
As Bob Moore, managing director of Alta Partners, put it recently, quote, If you want to know what happened, you can check stock prices or news feeds. If you want to know who is creating the future of medicine and why it is going to happen, read Timmerman Report and listen to the Long Run Podcast. End quote. So what are you waiting for? Go to TimmermanReport.com and click subscribe to get inside access to this valuable perspective on a weekly basis. And there is another way you can support quality independent biotech journalism. You could sponsor the Long Run Podcast. If you are at a company with your own podcast, this is one excellent way to let potential listeners find out about your show. The Long Run has more than 5,000 listeners every other week, and it's a very avid repeat listening audience. Ask my business rep, Stephanie Barnes, for more information about becoming a sponsor. Her contact information is on TimmermanReport.com. From a strategy point of view, too, um, you know, a company that was focused on treatments for rare disease, uh, you know, obviously knew that a lot of patients were on diagnostic odysseys to figure out what it was they had. Um, and so diagnose if you could diagnose people more accurately and sooner, um, that would have a big impact on improving patient outcomes and probably, you know, help your drug do better uh, in, in clinical development, your drug candidates. So um, it's, it's understandable why he was reticent to let go of it. Yeah. And, and in the end, you know, uh, the cancer model, the cancer treatment model has followed many of the exact um, strategies that he pioneered in the orphan drug world, you know, uh, drugs uh, targeted at populations where they can have enormous efficacy demonstrated, uh, commanding, you know, what now look like just tremendously high prices, even for cancer drugs, maybe not relative to Sarazine, but relative to historical cancer drugs, that's true. And so I do think it was intuitive to him as it was to other leaders at Genzyme that, you know, demonstrating high efficacy, even on small populations could be a great thing for curing disease and an economically viable model. So um, what did you accomplish there in your time at Genzyme Diagnostics? Yeah, you know, I was part of um, a few pretty exciting things in the field of reproductive and oncology diagnostic testing that were happening at that time. Um, on the reproductive side, and Genzyme at that point was the largest reproductive lab in the country in terms of amniocetesis, carrier screening to see if you know, parents who are considering having a child were at risk of passing along diseases, et cetera. Within that field, um, we launched um, uh, you know, the most comprehensive cystic fibrosis carrier screening panel, a 97 mutation panel that was enabled by the Luminex platform in those days. Um, I, I was involved in that. And then we launched spinal muscular atrophy carrier screening, uh, which was not available previously and uh, is a terrible disease with a relatively high carrier frequency comparable to the cystic fibrosis mutation. So that was uh, something I'm very proud of. It was a very successful commercially and I think high impact from a health perspective. I was there when we were first talking about non-invasive prenatal uh, testing, the NIPT that has become since popularized um, on uh, by companies like um, uh, Natera and uh, Illumina's test. Um, and we, we, while we didn't have one of our own, we did a lot of work to try to understand that landscape and, and get a test. 
And then on the cancer side, I was at the center of the EGFR mutation testing um, launch. You know, nanostrength, I mean, sorry, Genzyme was the exclusive licensee of uh, the Mass General Health, uh, Mass General Hospital's intellectual property around the correlation between EGFR mutations and response to drugs like um, uh, Tarceva. And uh, we developed and launched that first test. And then my team was involved in licensing out that intellectual property to a large number of diagnostics companies. So, um, and then overall, you know, as the broader management team of that division did a great job of turning that division around. And it was eventually sold years later uh, after I left to LabCorp for, I think, over $900 million. So it was, a, it was a successful turnaround for that division of the company that I played a small part in. Wow. There are so many aspects of biotech that you just touched on there that people were not paying attention to very much at that time. But with the benefit of hindsight now, we can say, wow, I mean, spinal muscular atrophy, we've now got a couple of very compelling treatments for that. And so there's you know, definite impetus for, for screening. Um, there's um, you know, the non-invasive prenatal testing, the EGFR screening. I mean, um, it really was quite a place to be. Um, but but you, you mentioned technology <laughs> playing like a, a, a central role here in kind of opening up these diagnostic applications. So this, this kind of leads you to, you know, the nanostring story, right? Where, where you first get the call to potentially become a CEO of a company. Um, right. How, how, what was, uh, how did that story begin for you? Well, the story actually begins before that call. Um, you know, part of my role at uh, uh, Genzyme Genetics was uh, I ran product development as well as partnering. And we were always talking to new enabling platform companies whose technology might be the underpinning for our next diagnostic test. And my, my R&D team came back from the 2009 American Society of Human Genetics meeting excited about this little company called Nanostring and their encounter platform which we thought might be a great platform on which to build these gene signature-based oncology tests that were becoming popular, um, you know, like the Oncotype DX test from Genomic Health was at that time. And so I arranged to meet the interim CEO of Nanostring at the JP Morgan Healthcare Conference in January 2010. It was a guy named Wayne Burns, who was the interim CFO of the company. And I said, "Hey, let's let's build diagnostics together. How do we do that?" And he said, "Well, we're we're you know looking for a CEO who can help us lead that." And I said, "Well, keep in touch, and you know when that person arrives and you work out your strategy, we'd love to be first in line to work with you." And you know, a few weeks later, I noticed that um, through Genome Web, which I read at that time, uh, that uh, a guy named Bill Young had become the executive chairman of Nanostring. Bill was somebody who I had met and had a lot in common with. Bill's another chemical engineer. He actually ran manufacturing at Genentech at the same time I was um, interning there as an undergrad. Uh, and he ran Monogram Biosciences, another diagnostic company that I had come to know. And I thought, well, that's interesting that uh, Bill's become executive chair. Maybe they're a step closer to having a diagnostic CEO. Uh, and it was shortly thereafter that I got a call from the recruiter who said, oh, Bill said we should call you. And, you know, we know you're young and not quite, you know, an experienced CEO, but, you know, Bill wanted you to know that he'd be willing to take you under his wing if you were willing to come and take a look at this. And yeah, I was a 33-year-old, you know, by no means CEO qualified individual at that time. But I thought, 
boy, here's a platform that I know is good because my team here has done due diligence on it. It's um, uh, an executive chairman who uh, I really admire and could learn a lot from and who's committed to making me successful. And um, and it's a it's a it's a good risk reward profile for somebody at my stage of career. So, um, you know, we uh, my wife and I had never been to Seattle, believe it or not, neither of us. She was pregnant with our second child. Um, so I said I said to the board of of Nanostring, you know, we really need to come out and see the city. Uh, before she can, as while she can still fly, and we came out in the spring of that year. I think I guess it was March, and uh, liked Seattle. And you know, one thing led to another, and I ended up here uh, in June, and uh, my family followed in July. Yeah, yeah, and this is where uh, I remember meeting you because uh, I That's mean right. I uh, I'm based in Seattle, listeners know, and and uh, had been covering Nanostring as a private company for several years prior to this. Uh, and for those unfamiliar, I mean it was founded at the Institute for Systems Biology, which was the nonprofit institute that Lee Hood co-founded. And of course, I've wrote the book about Hood a few years ago, but um, this is still a private company, venture backed. It had been commercial for, I think, a couple years at this point. And, and as you said, it was it didn't have a permanent CEO. But it, so it had this, this instrument for multiplex gene expression analysis. So you could look at multiple genes and whether they're turned on or off in a sample, which is very much consistent with, you know, Hood's ideology, which was, you know, they don't want to just look at just one gene or one protein in isolation. We want to look at whole networks, um, if possible. And you know, so this was like a technology that they invented to try to, to try to make that possible, uh, and, and give you a digital readout um, from from a single sample. Um, and and so you looked at this and and thought that this that this could actually become the basis for not just um, a research tools business. But also longer term, uh, you know, an enabling technology for for diagnostics. That's exactly right, Luke. The, you know, the the I'd say the initial thesis that I had at Nanostring was uh, that in order for personalized medicine to scale globally, we needed to move testing to from a centralized service model, which is what it what it was done on when it was very home brewed, you know, proprietary technologies to an in vitro diagnostic kit model where you could put a, a, you know, a regulatory approved instrument in labs all over the world and enable testing in repeatable ways. Uh, so I, I, that was kind of one of my core beliefs coming out of the Genzyme genetics experience. Um, so I you, you immediately that, saw this as, as contrasting to genomic health, which at the time right. had that, that central lab model. And they looked at a signature of, I think, 20 genes at the time to predict the risk of relapse with uh, breast cancer or uh, I mean, That's it evolved right. over, over time. That's but right. but they, they fundamentally required, you know, you as a doctor, as a scientist needed to send those samples to us where we do this, the special test in our own lab. And you were thinking, well, what if you flipped it on its head and, and uh, sell the instrument to the pathology lab there at the hospital, the clinic, the, the, the scientific lab, and they could do the test themselves. It's a different That's business right. model. And that, that always struck me as a far more natural way to provide diagnostic testing than to have a dedicated lab that was one facility in the whole world who did a specialized test. 
I, I also believed it was important that that ideally the the same technology platform that was used to discover the diagnostic signature originally on you know tissue in a research environment would be the same platform on which it would be provided in their diagnostic environment. And the reason I thought that was important is it would provide the smoothest and fastest translation of a new discovery to patients as quickly, as smoothly, and as globally as you possibly could. And so when I looked at Encounter, I saw that. I saw, you know, call it, you know, genomic health in a box from a diagnostic perspective. And uh, and there was obviously a robust research business that was already in motion at, at Nanostring. And I believed we could build those two businesses on the same platform under one roof. What, what did you learn in your due diligence on the company? Both, I guess, good and bad. Because at that time, I suppose, um, I mean, there were early adopter fans. Like there were people at the Broad Institute or Caltech or University of Washington that thought this thing was the cat's meow. Like they're going to do this. Right. The, and, but, but, you know, there wasn't, as I recall, like that just wasn't seen at the time as like a big enough growth business for what the investors and the world kind of wanted. It had to go to another level. That's right. Because I was in Boston, I had good access to the Broad and, you know, their enthusiasm was a very strong signal of the technologies platform to me. Um, So that was very positive. Um, You know, the venture investors who were involved, it was Claris Ventures at the time, Nick Galakados, who had an incredible reputation in the Boston community and now runs, you know, Black Blackstone Life Sciences. Um, he had, you know, he had mentored many successful people locally, and I knew he was smart. Um, so that was another big part of my due diligence. That was all the positive things. You know, if there's a negative thing, you know, if you're a 33 year old first time CEO and a company's really trying to get you to join as their CEO after not having a CEO for 14 months. You know, if you think you were the first choice to, for that job, you're pretty delusional, right? I, I I knew there must be something not quite perfect about this company or else they wouldn't be calling me. And I think I came to understand that, um, like you said, that, that there were certain aspects of the market opportunity at that time that were misperceived as niche. Um, and that, you know, Seattle was perceived as a place, a high-risk place to move your career, at that time, if you were on a fast track in Boston or San Francisco, uh, and you were looking at both a risky career move to a secondary market and a startup company with, you know, still pretty early in its commercial cycle, that was just too high a risk for many more qualified people to take. And I've met many more qualified people who turned down the job before I accepted it uh, since. Uh, so you, and you had to have that conversation with your wife, obviously, like, hey, I want to move across the country to the city we've never been uh, to start some company that nobody's ever heard of or, not well, you, started, know, but, we, you know, to, to, to lead it. That was that was an easy conversation. We wanted an adventure. You know, she and I uh, were young. We wanted to have a, a chance to live somewhere other than Boston. I always imagined that would be an expat assignment at Genzyme, maybe an overseas assignment with the company. But, you know, Seattle was sort of our expat assignment. And I. At that time, you know, uh, I, I believe that the most likely outcome for Nanostring, as it is for so many small companies, is is an exit after a few years through the sale to a larger consolidator. So we kind of imagined a three to five year stint here in Seattle that's turned into 11 and counting. Yeah, yeah. So um, what was the installed base at the time? Do you remember, like, how many institutions had an Encounter device and, you know, regularly ordered the, the chemical it was reagents? A, 
It was a few tens of instruments. Uh, today, it's a thousand approximately. Um, uh, but it was a few tens. And I remember, you know, the w- when I joined, I joined at the end of June. You know, uh, we had all the, the incumbent team had only sold, I think, four instruments that quarter, which was a big miss. And the head of sales resigned before I even met him. He refused to show up to the board meeting that happened in early July. So it wasn't long loop till I figured out, okay, there's pretty good reasons that qualified people didn't take this job. There was no head of R&D. There was no chief commercial officer. Uh, there was a lot of rebuilding to do. And while that was a challenge, it was also a privilege. You know, I got to rebuild it really from the perspective of my strategy, the culture I wanted to build, the type of people I wanted to populate the business with. So good came out of it, but there was a lot to do when I arrived. And you did have good technology. I mean, the multiplex gene expression, I mean, at the time, uh, I don't think there was anything quite like it. There was a lot of kind of, you know, microarray uh, instruments that were out there that people used, but, you know, you'd look at one or two genes at a time. It was slow. Um, so like you had a, a speed advantage, but also a, um, you know, a, a, you know, you were developing, you know, rich digital data sets. I mean, it was, the technology was way ahead of its time and of anything available. It was so powerful that people for a very long time did not believe it was true. It sounded too good to be true. Um, and we had to basically demonstrate that technology to, I'm guessing, every one of the first 100 customers to show that you could take a formal and fixed paraffin embedded slice of tissue, uh, which is very hard to work with, um, simply lice it and then uh, and then place it on the system and measure 800 genes worth of expression. I mean, it sounded like magic. Um, and it is, it is still a very popular technology. We still sell 120 of those systems a year, uh, you know, 12 or 13 years after its launch. And it has, it's a real workhorse in the field of oncology biomarker work. So you get uh, established here at Nanostring. You got kind of like a two-prong approach. Uh, you got your instrument business over here on one side and, and this uh, new frontier of diagnostics, let's call it on the other, um, you know, a long history here. And I know it was hard uh, at, a, at a number of steps along the way. You ended up acquiring the um, PAM50 gene signature, which uh, for breast cancer, which really did kind of end up putting you into a direct competition with genomic health, which we kind of alluded to earlier. Um, what, what was your strategy around PAM50 and what you ended up calling the, the ProSigna breast cancer diagnostic? Yeah, well, PAM50 had been identified and even optioned before I arrived at the company. This uh, PAM50, like you said, is a 50 gene signature that subtypes breast cancer until it's four fundamental subtypes and can be used to help assess a risk of recurrence and therefore inform what patients should have chemo versus who can be spared. It was actually the sixth ever consumable order for our research business, we're a set of researchers at Washington University, St. Louis, who were working out the PAM50 gene signature. Um, and it was the first striking adva- uh, example of our researchers being successful and wanting to work with us on the diagnostic front. It had advantages and disadvantages as the first test. The advantage was 
you know, it, it existed in a well-understood product category that had been pioneered by genomic health, where pricing was established uh, at a, and val- clinical value was established, um, and the key metrics for performance were well-established. Uh, it had a predicate device at the FDA by virtue of uh, some work that had been done by a company called Agendia. Uh, so those were all great advantages. Obviously, the disadvantage was it had a very strong incumbent competitor. So, you know, the idea was to take Persigna, uh, PAM50, which we later called Persigna, to develop it, to take it through the FDA, and use it as the foundational test to drive adoption of an installed base of in-counter diagnostic systems all over the globe, and then to build out a menu of additional tests that would hopefully be more novel, more uh, in kind of competitive white space. Now um, that, that all over the globe comment, that, that's an important one too, because at the time, what people, uh, it was a little trickier, let's say, for people overseas to send their samples to, you know, Redwood City, California, I think, which is where Oncotype, where the genomic health test was being run. So you're, you're really thinking about like, we're going to sell a lot of these instruments, people are going to be able to run the test themselves on site. Uh, and, and in terms of clinical data, wasn't it, I mean, pretty equivalent in, in terms of its predictive power to genomic yeah. health? The, the data actually says better, but yes, I mean, equivalent or better. Uh, the first study we did, we were fortunate to get access to um, material from a thousand samples that had been used in the validation of the Oncotype DX test. So we had those samples, we had the actual outcomes of the patients 10 years after their diagnosis, and we knew what the Oncotype DX score had said. So we were able to do a blinded head-to-head study against Oncotype. And we showed that the predictive power of uh, PAM50 per Cigna was uh, as good or better than Oncotype. In fact, there were fewer of the intermediate results that are sort of neither here nor there and frustrate physicians and patients. So it was a very strong data set. Um, that and that was a, a, that, a retrospective study that you could run pretty quickly uh, to mm-hmm. validate uh, yeah. your statistics. That's right. We ran it incredibly quickly. And again, it's a a prospective retrospective. So you're blinded to outcomes. You're statistically sound, but it's on samples that were collected in the past and outcomes that were collected in the past. Which uh, the advantage is like you you don't have to wait around 10 years to see if the person gets cancer. (laughs) That's right. Um, And, uh, you know, we that study, when we presented it, made waves. People did not think it was possible to do as well or better than Oncotype at that time. And um, it really put us on the map. And so it it took the company from a challenging situation and sort of an obscurity to one where it was getting a lot of attention when that when that study came out in late 2012. So you're all excited. This is late 2012. You're taking this thing out into the, the marketplace. Marketplace. You got an FDA approval, right? Yeah, well, we, you know, we, we, uh, we did things that you know, there, there was one very important event that happened between the time we published the results or presented the results and the time we got FDA clearance, we went public. So, you know, it was, uh, we presented the results and, uh, you know, there was a, this was, I guess, 20, uh, 2013 or 2012, um, uh, you know, I got together with a group of advisors, my board, as well as Henry Tremere, who had invested personally and was mentoring me through uh, my first CEO role. And, you know, they urged me to think about going public. Uh, this was a time, it's hard to imagine, where we thought, boy, the, the IPO window's open. Nobody knows how long it's going to be open. It feels a little early for the company, but we need to make a big push 
to finance it in the public markets. And so we we organized ourselves. We hired a new CFO. Um, you know, we did all the things you do. And then in the June of 2013, we actually went public. Yeah. Um, and and we this was just coming out of the, the long financial crisis, as you say. I mean, right. it really sounds like ancient and history, but it's not that I long know. ago. <laughs> but if you were if you were looking at a situation where you knew you needed to raise capital, we'd Nanostring had been around a while. You know, the venture firms had done four rounds of private financing and there wasn't a lot more there to go get from them. Um, it was important that we get finance in the public market. And we thought, boy, the window might only be open a little bit. So we rushed through it, rushed through it far earlier than was ideal for the company. But it was, you know, with the information we had at the time, it was the right decision. And it was a hard, hard IPO to get done, Luke. You know, we were, I think we had done just 25 million or so in revenue the, you know, the year prior, uh, people were investors were deeply skeptical about our ability to get Prosigna approved to the FDA, and then if they even if they believed that, they were skeptical about our ability to compete with Genomic Health. Um, we got the deal priced, um, and then the morning that it began trading, it dropped twenty percent of the open, uh, which is a sign that you know the, the shares were placed in a way that got the deal done, but didn't find long term homes for those shares. So. It was a hard, hard way to become a public company. Um, I would describe it as analogous to, you know, the birth of a child that doesn't go ideally, uh, you know, where it's a joyous moment, but at the same time, scary and nerve wracking. Um, and uh, and we, we had to claw our way back from that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so you, you try to do it there with, again, the ProSigna test. Um, I mean, to kind of fast forward through this one, I mean, this was a, a long, hard road. Um, how, did, how did that experience go for you over the next, I guess it was four or five years? Yeah, it was ups and downs. So yeah, we became public at the end of June. Uh, in early September, we got the Persigna cleared to the FDA. The stock went up 77% in a day. We were the number one stock on the NASDAQ. I was in New York for an investor conference. It was an incredible experience uh, to be vindicated. Um, and, you know, things were looking good. Uh, but then it took a very long time for us to garner Medicare coverage for that test, much longer than we'd anticipated. And it took a lot of wind out of the sales on our diagnostic business. Um, one really now, what, great what thing- was your, What was your pricing? What, what, what was the holdup? It was not the pricing. Uh, you know, the, the coverage decision holdup was- um, you know, a challenge for at least the Medicare administrator that we were talking to, to understand the clinical utility of our test uh, relative to the Oncotype TS that they, test that they had um, supported years before. And our data set wasn't ident identical. We had one data set that was identical. The other was a little different. And we spent a long time educating them about um, the equivalency of the tests that they had eventually acknowledged. Uh, well, and and you're asking hospitals to make a, a large capital equipment purchase of something like two hundred seventy-five thousand for the instrument. So, like, if you're going to buy that, you, you got to have confidence that you're going to, you know, get a lot of good use out of it. Uh, That's right. And, or if, and you're if you're not getting reimbursed by Medicare, you know, you're not going to just buy this and like let it sit in the basement. That's right. Or even if we could convince labs, then we had to convince physicians that when they wrote a prescription for that test, their patient was not going to receive a bill later because their insurance hadn't covered it. So, yeah, it did really throw a bucket of cold water on adoption. 
but but some really great things came out of our work with Presigna early on. One was that um, biopharmaceutical companies suddenly recognized that Encounter was the only FDA cleared platform for decentralized diagnostic testing. And uh, they began to come to us with their content. And we did a series of three very high profile biopharmaceutical partnerships to build out our menu of tests on Encounter um, with Celgene, with Medivation, which was later acquired by Pfizer and with Merck. Yeah, and, and this brought, was the beginning. This is the beginning of the IO uh, revolution, and the, suddenly the pharma industry was becoming very interested in in what was going on in the tumor microenvironment. Can we quantitate, you know, um, not just gene expression, but but other things going going on? And um, and so you guys got some some partnerships there, which which kind of bridged you through some hard times, like your stock was not high flying. <laughs> no, nope, it um, wasn't. There were, there was a, there were ups and downs and um, you know, two, two things it did for us really. One was we were laser focused on cancer and committed to cancer, both from the clinical and the research standpoint. I think more than most tech, you know, technology platform companies, we understood the biology and treatment of cancer. And that made us able to credibly develop tools for research that other companies couldn't. And we developed a series of panels that to this day remain kind of workhorse biomarker hunting panels for the pharmaceutical and diagnostic industries. And through these companion diagnostic partnerships, we brought a tremendous amount of non-dilutive capital into the company that we then reinvested into developing technologies beyond Encounter that really drive the future of growth in nanostring and spatial biology. And that was really enabled by all the capital that we gained from those pharma companies. So this would have largely happened behind the scenes, I would imagine. Like not, not a lot of attention in Wall Street going toward, um, you know, whatever you're doing with the capital you got from Celgene, you know, investing back in R&D. People are looking at things like, well, how are you doing on your PAM 50, your, your ProSignus quarterly sales? And, you know, there wasn't a, a great story. To, to tell there. How did you end up making the decision to divest and uh, of that product line, the diagnostic applications of the encounter, um, and, and then like really double, triple down on your, your research tools, both current and future? Well, it was really the rise of spatial biology. Um, and you know, w one of the tools that we had invested in developing uh, with the capital we got from the pharma companies is what's now known as the Geomics Digital Spatial Profiler. Um, and we believe uh, then early, and we definitely are, have been proven right now, that the next revolution in biology is to understand how cells work together in a tissue, interacting with each other, where you need to know both the biological state of a cell and its location within the tissue. If you, if you think about the tissue that we're all made of, you kind of think about the analogy of a fruit tart that has structure uh, as well as, you know, different fruit that's on top um, in a very particular arrangement with different types of fruit and different flavors. <coughs> you know, historically, bulk biology has basically taken a slice of that beautiful fruit tart, dropped it in a blender and made a smoothie that then we sip and we try to surmise what all the flavors were and that were in the ingredients to start with. I mean, that's what happens when you take a tumor, you grind it up and you measure its DNA or RNA on a normal sequencer. 
No, stop right there, Brad, because like a lot of people probably don't realize that when they first learn about genomics, it's like we're getting this digital readout, the ACG and T, and it's like this code and, you know, it's the instruction set for making cells and tissues and eventually going off into healthier disease states. But, you know, the way you actually, it's, it's been done, um, in order for the samples to be prepared properly to be fed into the instruments, like the, the sample itself gets just fundamentally kind of obliterated. Yeah. Homogenized. <laughs> uh, so, so, yeah. So, so that it can get you know, fed in and then an average, like a, like a pastiche of sorts, I guess, uh, of information comes out of that. That's right. And, and look, you can see a strong biological signal through all of that, uh, but only a very strong one. And so in the last several years, recognizing that the cells in that tissue are heterogeneous. In other words, by analogy, the fruit is different. Some are bananas, some are strawberries, some are kiwis. Um, Techniques to parse that heterogeneity have emerged and they're revolutionary. Uh, The first one is single cell biology, uh, where you think of the analogy of plucking each fruit off the top of the tart and examining it on its own. Um, The that's a revolution that started several years ago. It's been enabled by droplet-based technologies like those made by 10X Genomics. Um, and it is leading to an explosion of new discoveries about how cells differ from each other, cells that we thought were the same or clearly not. It's helping us understand um, on what particular cell types certain uh, biological or drug targets exist. Um, it's really helped us understand the heterogeneity that we couldn't see before. This is a really, um, what, really big step, it seems to me, Brad, where you like, if you cut out a tumor biopsy, we know that most tumors have this heterogeneity. As you say, there's different, different genes are, are expressed in different parts of the tumor doing all kinds of crazy things. <laughs> but if you can like go one by one and pluck an individual fruit, as you say, a, a single cell, and then sequence that cell and see what's going on in this one versus what's going on in the one on the the next branch over and on and on and on. Well, now all of a sudden you can assemble a much more, a much more high resolution, vivid whole picture. That's right. And and that's led to a lot of discoveries, but what it can't do, Luke, is you can't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. So, you know, kind of, you know, there's a lot of different cell types and you know what targets are important on those cell types, but what you don't know is where those cells were in the tissue. And that matters because cells talk to each other. Um, take the analogy uh, or to take the example of a tumor that's being infiltrated by the immune system. It's great if there's a lot of immune cells that are making it into the tumor, that's a good sign for prognosis. But if those cells, those immune cells are stuck at the periphery, then it, it doesn't really matter that there's a lot. It matters how many get to the center and can be cytotoxic. So location, matters. Spatial orientation of tissue matters. Tissue is made of different compartments and neighborhoods of cells. And that dimension remains missing from traditional single cell genomics. And it's that that revolution, that spatial revolution that our tools at Nanostring are enabling. And now, really just say, to come back to your say, original, go ahead. When you say spatial, like that sounds kind of like 3D, like looking at, um, the, the biology in more context. And this comes back to your earlier, uh, uh, the remark there about mapping the universe of biology. Yep. How, how, do, you, how do you do this? I mean, you're, you, you're already able to gather the, um, the, 
the gene expression, uh, quantitative digital information. You're also like mapping proteins. Um, what, what are what are kind of in the guts of the geome geomics? Yeah. So what you really want to be able to do is subdivide that tissue into many different experiments, ideally all the way down to the single cell level, sort of understanding the biology in that very small region while retaining the coordinates of that region within the tissue. Um, and it is three-dimensional though, honestly, because of the way pathology works, it's mostly two-dimensional, right? We take five micron slices with a microtome of a tissue sample and we lay them out on a slide. And really it's the XY coordinate that you're mostly worried about preserving. Okay. So the way that geomics works is uh, we create reagents that um, either consist of antibodies that have been labeled by DNA tags um, or in situ hybridization probes for RNA that are labeled with DNA tags. Uh, and we stain our slide with those. And then we use light directed to the different regions of interest within the tissue to knock those DNA tags off for collection. So think of it as, the, you know, it's, it's not that different than traditional microscopy, but what we've done is we've replaced the fluorescent colors that we would normally use as our dyes with DNA tags that can be collected and analyzed on an Illumina sequencer at very low cost per data point and very high throughput. And so region by region, cell by cell, we hit it with light and we collect those samples for analysis. And then we have a data pipeline that can map each of those little experiments, measuring the expression in RNA or the expression in protein back onto the image that we took with the XY coordinates of that tissue. And we can start to probe and, and very fine detail the, um, the spatial orientation of the biology. And these samples, as you and others point out, they are precious. You know, if you've got a tumor that's been in the freezer for 10 years from a breast cancer patient, you're only going to get so many bites at that apple. Uh, you want to get maximum information out of it when you when you mess around with it, when you thaw it That's out. That's right. And the, for that reason, and for, for no group, is that pressure to make good use of tissue higher than for biopharmaceutical companies who've invested tremendous sums in their clinical trials. When they collect pre-treatment or post-treatment biopsies from cancer patients, that is a non-renewable, precious resource that you only have one of. And so if I can take one slice off that tumor block and give a whole transcriptome's worth of spatial information, which I can now do with genomics, I am allowing a massive amount of data to be extracted from that precious tissue and of a type that's never been available before. And so that has led to a very rapid adoption of our geomics uh, digital spatial profiler amongst the translational research community, particularly in the field of immuno-oncology, where the orientation and activation state of immune cells within a tumor is highly informative. Yeah, yeah. People are looking at, you know, is this tumor hot or cold or somewhere in between? And what can we do to perturb it to, you know, move it from one state to another? And and you'd like to be able to get the most vivid resolution view into that possible. Yeah, so we can offer, um, you know, now resolution and plex in terms of the number of targets that was previously unthinkable. Um, and it's been, I mean, this, this, te this technology has taken off like a rocket ship. It is if I laid out the trajectory curves of the encounter launch versus the geomics launch, you would see we're in a whole nother 
ball game in terms of um, the demand and the revolution that we're enabling. And it's been, what what are the numbers? Was it something like a hundred instruments in the first year or so? Yeah, that was 150 plus to date. Um, And boy, it took us years to get to 150 encounters. Um, And um, yeah, we're, we're, we're basically selling today uh, to in a close approximation, approximately as many geomic systems as we sell encounter systems. And geomics only launched really in 2019 with, um, uh, so it's it's a very new technology that's already eclipsing encounter in our business. Really interesting. And that was the the moment when you made that pivot. You sold off the ProSigna business to Verisite, um, great diagnostics company. They can take it and, and do something with it. Um, and um, but you guys really doubled down on uh, research instruments for, for both um, customers of, in academia as well as industry. That's correct. Yeah. And the geomics is really our, uh, I'll say, uh, uh, you know, our growth driver. We, we sell both Encounter and geomics. Uh, Encounter is still the majority of our revenue, but geomics is growing so rapidly that it will eclipse it uh, in due course. Um, and, you know, we use some of that biopharma money and some of the uh, novel partnerships that we formed to develop a, 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 an even additional uh, spatial platform called the Spatial Molecular Imager uh, that we'll be bringing to market in 2022 um, and will help us even further uh, pursue this, this vision of mapping the universe of biology. I was really wondering about that imaging piece because that word spatial, coming back to that, it really does convey like a visual that you you can combine some of this quantitative molecular information with, you know, the the advancements in imaging we hear about a lot, like cryo-EM and others. Mm -hmm. um, How how are you piecing these things together? Uh, I know you said it's not really gonna be ready until 2022, but give, give us a glimpse into the future. Yeah, well, you know, I'm going to use a different analogy now for my smoothie. I'm going to think about Google Maps. Uh, you know, when you're when you're using Google Earth or Google Maps, there's different scales at which you can zoom in for different pieces of information. So geomics uh, really looks at the multicellular scale. By and large, people are looking at multicellular structures, like the tumor and microenvironment versus the tumor itself or a tertiary lymphoid structure within a tumor that's made up of multiple B cells. Uh, so the, the, Google, the Google Earth analogy would be like looking at neighborhoods, not at individual buildings. Um, but there is a need for resolution that's higher all the way down to the single individual le- cell level or even within cells kind of differentiating between the membrane, the cytoplasm and the nucleus in terms of where biology is happening. And that demands a different level, a different type of technology uh, that can really zoom into that level of resolution. And there's a new product category uh, called spatial molecular imagers that are going to be in that. And so they're synergistic. Our geomics digital spatial profiler is going to be high throughput. It's going to be whole transcriptome in terms of looking at 20,000 different targets. And its resolution is going to operate at that multicellular resolution. And then it's going to be very complementary to a higher resolution, you know, thousand plex, but not 20,000 plex, um, lower throughput technology called our spatial molecular imager. Um, and, you know, people will use, they'll choose which one they, they use depending on the nature of the experiment they're conducting. 
do you see the future of the company being really kind of all in here on research tools and consumables uh, for academia and industry? I mean, really kind of going back to the roots of the company or, or is there a chance that you, you could come back to diagnostics? I think we eventually will come back to diagnostics, but I think what the next several years is going to focus on taking these new spatial tools we've invented and helping researchers understand biology in new ways. And inevitably, just as they did with Encounter, they'll find some ways that can help us make better clinical decisions. And when they do, we'll be there for them to help translate those to diagnostics. But there is so much to do right now in basic research. You know, the spatial biology was named nature's method of the year back in January. If you go to AACR or the uh, AGBT meeting, you hear just about how much excitement is to apply these new tools in research. We're going to be focused on that for the next several years. And we'll come back to diagnostics uh, uh, in, in the future, but further down the road. Do you see um, yourself like kind of having a free path forward now and, and kind of avoiding some of the, the competitive battles maybe of the past? I, I kind of heard it like, you know, the, the genomic health story um, looms large, but, you know, now, now you have a system that can play well in the sandbox with Illumina rather than yes. trying to displace Illumina. Is, is that, um, how, how has your thinking evolved about, you know, finding a space where you can just get dialed in and own it. Yeah, I think I think that's the key difference, Luke. And, you know, with with Encounter, we were always carving out a niche. You know, we we were positioned uh, kind of at, at, at lower plex in terms of the number of things we were looking at than microarrays from Affymetrix or sequencers from Illumina, but above quantitative PCR from Thermo. And we owned that niche. I mean, we really are the market leader in that midplex niche, but it was always going to be a niche. Um, in contrast with spatial biology, it's quite open-ended. There are no meaningful incumbent technologies we really were first to market with an elegant solution. And I, I, there is and will be competition, but um, we are. there is no part of that space that's foreclosed to us uh, to have a chance to go out and lead and own. And so it's a very different position to be in, to be the first to market in a revolutionary field and have a chance to shape its development. It's, 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 uh, it's thrilling. Well, and you must... Uh feel pretty fortunate to have gotten that call to run this company in your early to mid thirties. I mean, here you are uh, 10 years or so later, um, been through some ups and downs and, uh, you know, you've hung around long enough <laughs> to, for, for the sun to, <laughs> for the clouds to part for, you know, some of this technology to mature, uh, and for the market to appreciate it. And, uh, and yeah, there, there's, I mean, how big do you think that this business could could become over the next five to 10 years? Well, we estimate the total addressable market uh, as being 16 billion in spatial. And that's to thinking about what the, about $8 billion a year in research potential um, if if people apply these technologies in the as a fundamental way of looking at tissue across all areas of science. And then you know, conservatively 8 billion in diagnostics. So we have room for a very big business here. When you think about the three revolutions that have happened in genomics, the, you know, the bulk revolution, the smoothie, you know, that's Illumina. That gave rise to Illumina. Uh, so they sort of owned that revolution. 
Uh, the single cell genomics revolution really gave rise to 10X Genomics and they're a very big, important company with uh, tremendous growth still ahead of them. I think nanostring can be the, the equivalent of that in spatial. And I don't see any bound or limit to what we can, uh, how much we can grow or how much we can achieve. Very, very cool. Brad, uh, I look forward to seeing uh, scientists around the world publish uh, cool papers based on what they learn from your tools and spatial biology. Thanks for joining me today on The Long Run. Thank you, Luke. Enjoyed it very much. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.